Good evening, and welcome back to Hollywood RX. The doctors are in. Doctors being Dr. D, of course, and myself, Dr. G. How are you, Dr. D? I am delightful, or I hope I'll be delightful. We know you'll be delightful. How could you not be when talking about tonight's film, Joker? I will start off with... uh, a little summation. Please do. For a non-comic book movie fan, I found this to be a pretty powerful film. So much so that I wish it hadn't actually been about the Joker. I thought Joaquin Phoenix gave an astonishing performance. Performance. The direction was top-notch. Uh, the, the the recreation of mid-70s New York at the depths of its darkest days was unbelievably on on the money i the script did takes a couple of incredulous turns i thought and a couple of unnecessary ones but generally i felt like there was more attention paid to character development here than one might expect from a marvel comics universe movie now dr d tear down that wall I will not tear down that wall i was uh delighted by this film uh, this uh, dark and dirty trip into the depths of uh, the character on hand. Uh, at, at, you know, Joaquin Phoenix was mesmerizing to me, and I'm sure I will bore everyone to tears by the time we're done with all the cheering that I will do for the work that he did here. Yes, Todd Phillips, uh, director Todd Phillips, uh, writer in this case, uh, co-writer, did a tremendous job, I thought, in, yes, uh, creating a time and place. Uh, I am not a fan, per se, of comic book movies, but having two sons who are now college age, uh, I saw all of them. I mean, all of them. So I I came to it very well versed in what I felt were the successful ones and the ones I didn't feel were successful. And I can detail those those as we proceed. Uh, let me just uh, quickly acknowledge my mistake from a minute ago. Yes. I said Marvel Comics Universe, and of course, everyone knows it's a DC Universe. Exactly. I was going to gently come back to that later and make sure that I had it right or that I knew that it... it, it you can cut this part out. Yes, Correct. I have to say, I was pretty... Uh, there are so many levels on which I was astonished. One of them being that this came from Todd Phillips. Uh, absolutely. I realized that his last movie was, I believe, a serious one. Because I've read that everyone's saying he was trying to be Scorsese in that movie. I can't remember the name of it. Right. But certainly for the for, for the comic chops that he has, he really went 180 here and, and knocked it out of the park. Uh, absolutely. He he has predominantly a comedy background and not just comedy, but kind of almost, you know, lowest common denominator type comedy. I mean, the, I certainly enjoyed the first Hangover movie, but there's definitely it's very broad and very, you know, sort of base, but still very funny. And eventually he slides into, you know, he does he produces War Dogs. Mm. possibly even directed it let me just take a quick look yeah he directed war dogs and then joker so i'm not sure which 
which movie they were likening him to Scorsese and they'll be likening him to it now. Yes, yes, well. Um, and, you know, once again, I noticed there are a lot of uh, Taxi Driver and King of Comedy Oh, absolutely. But I think it stands very independently of any of the movies that one thought of while watching it. I, I agree. I felt like the presence... Or the the forebearer, you know, that these other movies were forebearers to it. Not not that it was necessarily standing on their shoulders or borrowing from them to to substitute for its own original content. It's just that, right. you know, it was kind of almost in the DNA of the way they went about it. And then, you know, to sort of put a grace note on top of that, and we can get into this more later, casting De Niro himself and by casting him in, in this sort of backhanded way getting his kind of approval you know it sort of feels like if he's in there yeah. he he's recognizing and accepting the fact that right it's no surprise to him that his role was a flip on king of Comedy. right i mean he's he's in some ways again we can go into it more later but in some ways i think he is perfectly cast in this part for the layers that it brings to it and then in other ways i feel he is the terrible casting for this part but um uh we can get to that a little bit down the line it's not all sure. it's not all I mean, uh, giggles and sunshine for me with this film but there is i have a lot of love to yeah. send send its way yeah same here now, i don't know about you i know that you spent some time in new york city but i don't know at what point you got there uh, i was born and raised in new york yeah and i have vivid memories of the garbage strikes, the blackouts, right. the lines for gas. And this movie so transported me back that I was I was starting to get depressed. <laughs> yes, I just seeing yeah, go how, on. how like, you know, all those old all those old fleets of buses and subways, you know, just as they were on like their last legs before being phased out. Right, right. And wheezing and struggling to to do what they needed to do, just incredible, just incredible. Uh, absolutely, I um, I lived uh, in Brooklyn until I was about uh, you know eight or nine years old, and that was the early seventies. And then I went back to Manhattan to go to college there, and that was in the you know the eighties. The movie is is technically set in eighty one, but obviously. Yes. Everything that was going going on in the seventies is still sort of hanging over like a shroud uh, over this yeah. thing. And and Todd Phillips was also a, a Brooklyn native, Brooklyn boy, uh, born in nineteen yes, I, born in nineteen seventy. So he grew up in this through this time period. Yeah, it's funny. I, I I told my wife after seeing it that I felt like someone went about to recreate the New York that I grew up with. Yeah, and then I read an interview with him. That said that exact thing, that that was his M.O. in making this, was to recreate the New York he grew oh, up in. Oh, I thought you meant he, he, he was specifically trying to recreate the New York that you grew up in. <laughs> he name-checked you he in the interview. <laughs> I, I couldn't quite understand why they felt the need to date the film from 1981. I think it would have been just fine without that, because apparently it got a a lot of details wrong. Oh, I see what you're saying. 
well, if you look at the goofs page on IMDb, yeah, it's a laundry list of, I mean, just about everything. Like that VCR wasn't made in 1981. Right. That shoe wasn't produced in 1981. I mean, it's it's almost comical. Well, here's the thing. First of all, look, I have to say this right off the top. I, I've I've already said a couple of things, but I just have to move forward like this because I know, at least I hope I know, that we have some loyal listeners who have been with us from the beginning have heard me complain about a lot of things, this, that, and the other, whatever, so on and so forth. If you're new to the program, you end up going back or going forward, you may. Here's the thing. There are so many things in this movie that I have complained about other movies doing wrong in the past that I 100% forgive here. And in fact, I almost like it because of those things. So this is just an entire hypocritical check for me. Can you give an example? Well, what I was just about to say with regards to the goofs is fuck them all, is what I was going to say in the, <laughs> yes. in the following way. If they're going to be nitpicking little bitches, frankly, I have almost nothing but contempt for people who put info on IMDb, trivia and otherwise, even though I read the trivia obsessively, I also hate the trivia obsessively. And same, same goes for the goofs. But uh, here's what I would say. It's not fucking New York. It doesn't take place in New York. It doesn't actually take place in the world in which we live, although it absolutely seems like it could be a place where we live. And so I agree with you that they would have done themselves some favors, not by announcing that it was 81, but at the same time, when they're going into production to a certain extent, they have to say, okay, what are we dealing with? And then do the best within that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for my money, it was just enough to see, oh, an actual VHS player, you know, right. I'm glad that I'm glad that the the, the VHS obsessives out there caught the fact that that model hadn't been produced yet. Right. But I mean, that's really that's a it's a stupid criticism. I think so, too. Um, I think if it had the exact perfect uh, era appropriate VCR player, that it would not have improved the movie a single whit. So, yeah, just to sort of double back about about this, as I say, I've seen a bunch of these movies and this is the and to, and to me, the the Nolan Batman movies are very high on the list. Both. Oh, yeah. No, those are the only comic book movies <laughs> that, that I like. And I don't with. even really think of them as comic book. Movies. Well, exactly. But. Even within that, which is this more gritty and darker, and I'm going to put quotation marks around the words realistic, certainly in the Batman history up to that point, um, it had never been that sort of gritty and realistic. I never felt like Nolan's Gotham was a place that really existed. I still felt like it was a fairy tale place. And for me, this is the first time that I felt this story takes place in the world in which I live. Mm -hmm. I I never sat there thinking, oh, that's New York. It was a not New York place, but it was a real place. And every supporting character and actor was very natural. Absolutely. No one seemed forced at all in their delivery of anything. Uh, And there were so many moments involving supporting characters that didn't get as ham-fisted as they could have been. Right, right. There's a very realistic movie in terms of interactions between people and conveying a lot with a little. I don't know about you, but I felt like in the two scenes with his uh, 
therapist. This yeah. is social worker. Right, social worker. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of felt that woman's weariness with the job. Right. Even before he called her out for not picking up on, you know, him saying he's never been happy his entire life. Or that, yeah, exactly. He calls her out on not listening to him. But right. but it wasn't just him. She but was just kind of in. over it entirely. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. It's filled with uh, all of these small, uh, but really well cast and really well played supporting parts that almost all of them have a little moment here and there, which, which gives the actor a chance to shine. But uh, still within this sort of believable the believable way. I'm not necessarily going to go through this like scene by scene with you, although I'm tempted to, but I do want to, I do want to look at two quick things right from the beginning. One is what is our essentially is our introduction to him at that mirror while he is basically using his fingers to force his face into a, into a smile, into a frown, almost like, like he, he doesn't even know how to have real emotions. Or he doesn't know how to make his face do the things that everyone else's faces just can do. Yeah. He has to force it to happen. It was just very unquieting and disturbing from the very beginning without him doing something even that was outrageous in particular. And that I think it's that one where he's he forces his face into a smile, but then it, I believe a tear is falling down his cheek. Yeah, I think it's a tear of makeup. It, it possibly, yes. Uh, it's certainly running at that point anyway. Yeah, And then I also wanted to say, that's not even necessarily the very first thing, but there's the scene where, you know, he, he gets he gets jumped by those teenagers who bash him with his sign and then he's yeah. on the ground and they're kicking and kicking and, and beating him. And we're sort of in this medium shot and then they stop and they finish and they run off down the alley into the distance and we've just got him sort of writhing on the ground. And there's a point yeah. at which... The flower that's tucked into his lapel oozes yes, water I caught that too. out of it. Yeah. And I just absolutely adored that. <laughs> like even the flowers. Yeah, I don't know crying. if that was an accident or or intentional, but that was a that was a brilliant when you, little touch. In the in the like the way his body is moving, he actually sort of he, Joaquin, actually sort of reaches across himself and and I, I believe he triggered it himself at in the scene. But I just I had just adored that tiny that kind of tiny little detail. And the thing is the movie is just full of those little uh Yeah. Those little moments. I found I found his performance to be just almost almost able to 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 produce tears in me. Yeah, yeah. That first scene with the social worker where we were holding on a close up of him and he's going through that laughter, but you don't know what it is yet. Right. And he looks like he is he about to sob? Is this laughter going to turn into a cry? Right. Or what? It was like he was struggling with it. I mean, I don't know about you or any of our listeners, but I can tell you that if you have ever been in a really deep biochemical depression, yeah, that's that's about as on target as I've ever seen it portrayed in the film. Uh, it was just, it was mesmerizing. The, 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 you hear his voice, he is making the sound of laughter, but everything else, his face, his, his entire body, looks like he's in agony or heartbreak. Yeah. Um, and so you, yeah. you know right away there's this incredible disconnect inside this character 
between what he's feeling and what he's showing. And I really, yeah. I really loved how, you know, they cherry picked, you know, three or four or whatever it is, little pieces that are sort of from the, the Joker iconography trait wise. You know, if we go all the way mm. back to Adam West and the TV show, Cesar Romero is cackling like a maniac in that. Yes. And I'm sure that that's just lifted straight out of the comics and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. No, no offense to the Batman TV show. And so to say, okay, this is a trait this guy is going to have, but now let's ground this in reality. Yeah. And then once it's grounded in that reality, then how can we use it to illustrate things about him or to help it play on a story level so that when he's on the train and they're harassing that young woman and then they sort of notice him and he starts laughing, you know in that moment that, oh my God, he's laughing because of how incredibly uncomfortable he is, but he cannot stop laughing. And the more they focus on him, the more uncomfortable he's going to be and the more it's going to draw their attention. And, And so you just know that something terrible is coming and you sort of almost can't wait for it to happen. It's this yeah. very strange thing. I mean, and we both lived through Bernie Getz, the sub- right. subway vigilante. Yeah. And so even even that plays in. Just really special to me how they weaved or wove or woven, whatever, uh, real world details and elements and history throughout this thing is just... Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that laugh because it was... It was incredible. And I know just the report is that he he worked very, very hard on that. Because it wasn't, you know, Cesar Romero in the TV show was obviously doing a forced right, laugh. Right, right. And Heath Ledger didn't rely on laughing all that much. No. Maybe one or two times in the movie, and that's about it. Right. Almost like a flourish here and there. Yeah. Little things like, oh, he leaves, he, he, he's now fired from the place, I think. And he's mm-hmm. going down the stairs. And there's a sign that would be for the performers that work for them going out the door that says, don't forget to smile. And he, he reaches up and crosses out forget to so that it reads, don't smile. Right. Just little things like that. Like, how do you, how do you get there as a writer? Like, how do you find that place? Well, I like that they're they're the for all the, the the clues and the information and details, they didn't repeat anything. Right. You know, it wasn't like in a usual movie where you're gonna see it once and then fifteen minutes later it comes out again to remind to remind you of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And this movie didn't do that at all. You know, even spoiler alert, even the the one I really liked is uh at is towards the end when he's looking at the vintage photo of his mother yeah and then we cut to the reverse shot and see written on the back is love your smile tw right right that was just brilliant i thought yes i I love it Uh, yeah there was so i that sort of goes to the directing and and the writing i mean if he's involved in both it sort of becomes like one thing in a way yeah my head is sort of spinning with little things go on just to touch on what you said before about almost wanting him to explode in that subway scene. A film that I kept thinking of yeah. during this movie was A Clockwork Orange. Oh. Which, at the time, was extremely controversial, not only for its stark portrayal of brutality, 
but also for the moral ambiguity of the film itself. Many people felt that Kubrick romanticized the violence perpetrated by the Malcolm McDowell character. Right, right. But, but, but treated whatever was happening to him as, as unjust and tragic. And that the end of the movie is like a, a wink, wink at the audience that everything's just going back to normal. And I wondered about Joker. You know, unfortunately, we live in a time where there is so much extremism in the depiction of violence, brutality, sex, um, and even dystopian societies. Yeah. That nothing, I think, could really come out and have the kind of impact that A Clockwork Orange had. Because it was, at the time, 1971, it was a shocking film right. compared to everything else that was coming out around it. Joker's very much a product of its times. I, I'd like to think that there's another universe in which it is a clockwork orange, <laughs> except right. I don't think it could have been made without the history of the last 10 or 15 years and the permissiveness of extremity. Yes, and even possibly the existence of Clockwork Orange itself, right. which goes back well beyond 15 years. Yeah, and another thing too is I was also wondering, is this movie condoning what he's doing? Because in what little pre-release hype I read, that I'd seen that that was a concern, and all I saw is the poster of him you know, dancing on the stairs, and I thought, uh-oh, you know, is this going to be one of those? Right. And uh, it certainly, I think, by the time the subway scene came, I realized there is no way anyone who's half sane could watch this movie and think right. that it, it, it's condoning what he's doing. Okay, so I got to stop for one second and say, that was very nice. I'm not arguing or anything with you. I, I agree with you there. Here's the thing. If someone is going to come out of this and have been tainted by it, they were they were a broken person to begin with. Like you say, there's no one who's even half sane. So you can't right. really get out ahead of someone like that. And, you know, they could just as easily go see, you know, The Sound of Music and come away with a murderous, toxic idea. They're just broken people waiting for something to happen. So, right. Oh, I know what I was going to say. I, I Later on, I want to talk about that scene on the stairs. But just because you touched on it just now and I had made a statement about things about this that... I usually hate that then I, I forgive here. Um, first of all, yeah, such as. Looking, looking at that poster, as I did before the movie was released, I didn't get a lot of other pre-contamination about anything. Okay. I wasn't completely clear that he was dancing in it. I would, couldn't quite tell what it was. It was just a very striking image that I didn't quite know how to feel about. It's unfortunate. I don't feel like that poster is really representative of the movie and in fact i think it makes it easy for people to look at it and think that the movie is going to glorify all these wicked dastardly acts of his <laughs> right so on to the thing that i would normally be screaming about and i have in other cases yes. to me that is the emotional climax of the movie that is one of the greatest parts of the movie is him on those stairs that's depicted in the poster. And normally I would be livid about f not so much the filmmakers, but that the advertising people were basically ruining that moment by putting it on the poster. 
And yet in mm. this case, it doesn't bother me. I, if I remember correctly, I'm going to do a terrible job of this, but if you look at the poster for Ender's Game, I believe there's information in that poster which essentially ruins the movie. Mm. Uh, you know, that kind of thing where they go, oh, here's here's a shot from yeah. the climax of the film. So, That'll get them in the theaters. <laughs> yes. But now, sort of doubling back, this is nowhere near... I mean, what you just did bringing, bringing Clockwork Orange into the discussion is excellent, excellent work. I hadn't gone there myself while watching it. And now I'm going to mention like two other movies that came to my mind while watching it, but it's not nearly as... I, I feel ashamed to even bring it up after such a great uh, contribution on your part. No, 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 but, no. Go, 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 go. <laughs> there's a shot of him, I think, going home from work either the first time or the second time. It would be certainly before he does the open mic. But it's just sort of an, one of these little traveling shots of his sad life. And he's on a bus mm -hmm. and he's got his face pressed against the window. Oh, and I got yes. a total Midnight Cowboy, Cowboy vibe from that shot. Oh, yeah. And that's another movie set almost in the same time period, a little bit earlier, but it, it has that gritty, life is dirty in this place yeah. kind of feel to it. And so I flashed on that. And then really weirdly, and, and I feel like the Midnight Cowboy reference might have actually been intentional on the part of uh, Todd Phillips, Phillips or, or, any, any, or the cinematographer, whoever, whatever. But this other one, I don't know. Uh, when he is in the spotlight... Uh, before he really starts speaking during this, his stand-up at the open mic, he's kind of mm -hmm. standing in the spotlight trying to figure out what he's going to do. I got a complete uh, Buster Keaton kind of... Oh, interesting. Because Buster was very thin and often very pale, and you know his you know hair plastered down on his head a little bit. I don't know. It was just like kind of weird and, and spooky, but kind of cool. I'm, I, I have a feeling they didn't intend that one, but... That whole scene was was very, uh, <clears throat> that open mic scene, I liked it a lot because you're like, it's this these things where you're like, you're there holding your breath because you're certain something terrible is going to happen. Uh, you know, and you want it to and you don't want it to at the same time. You know, oddly enough, um, his stand-up scene did bring up one of the things that... Uh that kind of stuck out at me a little bit in a negative way. Yeah. Is when, when Robert De Niro airs that clip. Yes. I don't know if it was the exact same camera setups, i.e. the same footage that we just watched when he was up there. But right. I feel like, especially now for 1981, the quality, the picture quality of that clip should have been much poorer than it was. Oh my God, you're hilarious. Because it's like, you know, like, you know the comedy club's got like a VHS camera in the back. Right, right. Zoomed in as far as it can go with a shitty built-in mic. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what though. First of all, <laughs> that's like the guy complaining about the VCR, but I understand. Your, your complaint that the quality was too good. See, I couldn't get my brain around the fact that I sort of felt like that felt like a much more modern type thing that because of cell phones. Right. But I was like, okay, Which, but there aren't cell phones in this room because they're not doing that here. And then I went, and how did, right. how did it get to, you know, Robert De Niro so fast? It feels well, like... Well, and that's just it. It just would have taken a line to say that Com that the club sent it over. Right, right, right. I mean, thought you might find this funny. In, in point of fact, 
shows like that show, the Tonight Show, whatever, they would send mm-hmm. they would send you know people out to nightclubs and and comedy clubs in order to scout people. So, but they wouldn't be scouting an open mic. That would be that would be a little bit right. too uh, too weird. Um, so I, yeah. I I got a little tripped up on that whole little section. Feeling like no, it was... yeah, and and rightfully so because yeah, especially for that time period, it was a pretty quick turnaround to getting on the air. That that's more in line with today's dynamic than back then. Right, right. Um, now here's a little sort of a, a thing I didn't. I noticed that the club he's playing at in the where he's doing that open mic is called Pogos. I don't know if you Pogos made a made a mental note of that. Pogo was the the performing name, the name of the clown that uh, John Wayne Gacy performed as. Oh, shit. No, I didn't know. I, I didn't realize that. Right. Wow. Now, I didn't know that off the top of my head. I just stumbled I stumbled on it afterwards. But I was like looking at it in the movie going, Pogos, that's, they've clearly made a very specific choice to make it that instead of like yeah. Chuckles or whatever. Like, And I'm like, I wonder why that is. So anyway, that was the... The answer to why wow. to why that was just a, a little side note. Yeah, a friend of mine in Chicago found one of Gacy's clown paintings in a thrift shop. Oh, oh my God! Yeah, that's that is off uh, off putting. And did he buy it? Oh yeah, oh yeah, I've seen it. It's on his wall. Oh my God! Yep. Oh dear! Oh dear, dear! Yeah, like exactly. Like if you found it, would you buy it? I you see the thing is is I probably I probably wouldn't even know I wouldn't have made the connection unless the the place was saying hey by the way this is what this is did they know what they were selling oh no okay. nope no nope. I think he paid like two or three bucks I, for I it. don't think I could ever have gotten that far with you know that I would have ever made it there I would have picked it up in a heartbeat turn it <laughs> around and sell it on eBay if I had known yes I would have done that but I mean I, I would never have I don't have John Wayne Gacy facts. Close enough to the top of my head. Sure, sure, sure. To do that, let's take a just a little bit of a pause here, and I wanted to ask you. Okay. How long has um, uh, sorry, my brain is worthless. How long has Joaquin Phoenix been on your radar? What was the first thing you remember seeing him in? Oh, are you kidding? Oh man, I can't. <laughs> a movie I saw with you. Oh no! To die for. Yes, that's what I was going to say too. Uh, to yeah. die for, and he and he and he already he already had a pretty good handle on conveying inner torment. Yes, in a, in a very compelling and sympathetic way. Like right out of the gate, he kind of had that. Uh, exactly. What's weird though? Weird isn't the right word, but no, I guess I'm wrong. Sorry, I lost my mind. He was in Parenthood prior to that, but he was performing under the name Leaf mm. Phoenix. And so I never made that connection that that was actually the same person. That's funny. I didn't realize that that was him. So I I knew he was in, I guess I knew Leaf Phoenix was in Parenthood, but I didn't realize that he, so yes, I do remember him very well. And To Die For seems like the beginning, like his kind of modern, the the larger outline of what his character was going to be, the character he was going to explore and re-explore. Yeah seem to be kind of set up there. And in some ways, I feel like filmmakers, maybe even he, but certainly filmmakers, I think they sort of use his, uh, essentially what's his, a hair lip, as a 
a shortcut to this person is troubled. Hmm. I suppose that's true. I hadn't really, I didn't really look at it that way. He doesn't tend to play I, a lot a of well-adjusted guys. This is true. <laughs> Almost all of them, with the possible exception of J- Johnny Cash. And sometimes that feature of his face is played up, and sometimes it is somehow played down. I don't know how they do that. but I think he does it. I think, oh. I think, I think it probably it gives him a natural propensity for snarls right. and sneers. Because To Die For certainly introduced him like as a teen actor, but Gladiator introduced him as kind of a man to me. As an adult. Yeah. And did, then Did you see Inherent Vice? Uh, you know what? I tried to see it, meaning that I couldn't quite get into it and get through it. Mm. it, it for some reason, it just struck me as forced or kind of precious rather than sort of naturally being whatever it was trying to be. I have a feeling whenever we do Paul Thomas Anderson's next movie, <laughs> it's going to be a doozy of an episode. <laughs> That's entirely possible. So I, I did see The Master. I thought he was terrific in The Master. Well, you know, it's funny because another movie I thought of watching Joker was uh, You Were Never Really Here. Yeah, I know. I was just... Uh... And, and, and how I felt like what, what they were going for in that movie is what Joker did. What they accomplished in terms of here. Conveying yeah. this dark, haunted character. That's funny because there was a, a fair amount of a sense of um taxi driver in that one as well. Which I kinda don't really agree with. Okay. <laughs> I, and and we talked about it in the episode. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. No, um, I know. I felt like it was an unfair I felt like it was an unfair comparison to make. It's it's really just simply on the one aspect of the storyline where he's rescuing a child prostitute right but that might be enough as far as a character piece goes it's nothing like right no no, i understand i feel like this how do i put this that one wore its similarity to taxi driver taxi driver like a like a top hat you know uh Hmm. drew attention to its thing in in joker the the similarities to taxi driver on a, are on a molecular level like mm. they're much more part of the dna of the whole thing and therefore they feel a little more honest a little more earned yeah we never did see don't worry he won't get far on foot that's a a hole in our uh, yes it is <laughs> uh, no. one of many holes <laughs> So anyway, I just wanted to, to touch on him briefly. I mean, obviously, we don't need to have a conversation like that about De Niro, but I feel like it's been years since he did anything that was, or even was in anything that I cared about. And again, he he wasn't over the top, you know. It, yes, it was actually kind of believable that he would the 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 goading, the drawing out of Phoenix when he's a guest on the show right seemed very believable okay now we have to now we have to stop we have to stop and i have to start complaining okay good Uh, because i was about to start complaining (laughs) this is one of the the few parts of it that i feel passionately against uh now going back to my original my previous comment about him being cast the most perfectly cast and and terribly cast at the same time there is only one scene in this movie in which I remotely believe Robert De Niro as this guy, hmm. as this host. 
And it is the scene backstage when he meets. And he meets the guy. And meets Joker. It's just all business. And he's yeah. yeah and he's there with um, Mark Maron is supposed to be like the show producer. Right. And that scene, I felt like, oh, that's a human being. I recognize. Whenever he was playing that character on stage, so you say that guy that I saw him playing backstage then gets in front of a camera. I never believed he seemed awkward and stilted and stiff and not like a real person to me. Interesting. I did get I did pick up on the fact that there was a different personality at work when he was in front of the camera, his the the TV camera. Yes. But I I would have thought of that as being intentional. And it may well have been, but it didn't make me go, well, I can see why he's a hugely popular uh, why he's a hugely popular talk show host. He didn't strike me as the way uh, the fl- I feel I feel like Johnny Carson, which is the only guy he could really be compared to in this scenario. Cuz he certainly wasn't playing a, a David Letterman type. And those were no, sort of true. the only two choices then. So if he's got to be one yeah. of those two, I mean, unless you're talking about who's that guy who had the horrible talk show Joe something in the New York area on cable. Oh, Joe Franklin. Joe Franklin, unless he's Joe Franklin, which is much closer to what it was, I think. But he just didn't. I mean, Carson was always had just seamless grace. Yeah, that's true. That he was always perfectly at ease in front of that studio audience. And I did not feel that De Niro was portraying a guy who was perfectly at ease or comfortable being funny. That's fair. And that's fair. So there's that. And then I absolutely thoroughly hated as much as I loved everything else. I absolutely thoroughly hated all of the cat and mouse stuff that he did in the scene where Joker is on that show. The very dialogue that you were just saying, how he teased it out of him or whatever. I felt like that was a, the worst written part of the entire script and Mm. b played by De Niro as ham fistedly and everything right on the, on the nose it, I just hated that, hmm. and that when hmm. when the when the control of that scene shifts back to Joaquin, and he then in a perfectly graceful uh, Johnny Carson manner kind of takes over, and it becomes a speech that he's giving, rather than the back and forth. Then that that scene kind of shifts to me, and you know the gear the gears go boom, and it takes off like a fucking rocket as soon as it's not being held down and held back by the horrible Robert De Niro's performance. Well, it's funny that you mentioned David Letterman because yeah, Letterman did have, quite famously, uh, some very uncomfortable moments with some of his guests. That's true. That's true. Well, a very notable one was uh, Crispin Glover. Yes, yeah. Which is funny because, as I recall, he Letterman was actively trying to, to rein Glover in. Yeah. And kind of move it on and, and, and get get to the next thing. Whereas when, say, Oliver Reed was on, he's he's clearly goading Oliver Reed. Ah, uh, okay, okay. Like, like he, he's wanting him to explode. So that's, that's part of the reason why when that came up, I was like, yeah, you know, I could see one of these hosts being like, no, 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 this is going to make for good television. You're you know, right, whatever. you're right, you're right. I have yeah. to, I have to maybe Six reassess one, there a little. It didn't bother me as much as two things in the end. Okay. One's little, one's kind of big. Okay. The little thing, 
when he's when he's on the steps, the staircase. Yes. I'm not even sure I can articulate why, but I was really bothered that the two policemen, the two detectives, were standing up at the top of the stairs and just watching him. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What should they have been doing? Coming down the stairs to nab the guy. Okay. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't feel like the spectacle was one that was that that merited them stopping in their tracks to take it in. Okay. Huh. You know? Yeah. Yeah, and and maybe I was also put off by the fact that here's this moment where he feels like he's on top of the world, but no, cuz reality check, you're about to get arrested. I don't know. The the bigger thing I had a problem with actually is the 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 the, the second to last scene. Okay. Where he's resurrected on the police car hood. Yes. And then stands up and 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 all the clown all the rioting clowns are uh are giving him a hail caesar right <laughs> and not as in romero right <laughs> that that scene felt a little too planet of the apes for me oh okay <clears throat> I, I didn't see how suddenly they would rally around this guy because i don't think there's any way any of them knew that he was being arrested for being the original clown murderer. Oh. You know, like for all they, they know, have he was known just a rioter who got picked up. They couldn't have known who he was or why he was so important. Well, that's that's very interesting. So, so that's very interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way because moments before that, the police car he's in, he's being transported, gets rammed by right a, another vehicle and my assumption was always that they knew he was in there and it was some sort of rescue attempt but in fact based on what you're just saying it was just completely random that it happened it was chaos that was kind of the feeling i had was that they were ramming a police car yeah there just happened to be a clown guy in the back seat right right because certainly, even even if they had announced okay the joker killer is is under arrest well they're certainly not you know mapping out the, right. the route to the jailhouse. Right, right. That didn't feel like it belonged here. Okay, okay. Uh, the only thing I would say as a counter to that is maybe that, let's say they assume that he's just one of them. He is also just one of them who was caught by police, escaped from police, seemed to resurrect, and consequently mm-hmm. he, he is to be revered even as one of them. But I understand what you're saying. That really, you know, if any, if any of them could possibly have known, it would have been such a small number of them. Yeah. You know, even just a, that, hey, that's him kind of a thing would have, would have solved, yeah. would have solved that or clarified that a little bit. Uh, point well taken. Point well taken. Another, the, the only, the only other story element that troubled me. Okay. Was because it seemed so obvious He's back at work. He's upstairs in the lockers with everybody. They're all talking about this 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 crazed clown killer. Right. And you know, no one connects the dots like, "Hey, this weird guy over here at work who, you know, kind of makes everyone feel weird and uncomfortable. He had a clown mask. He had clown makeup on." Right. I don't know, like to, to, to have them all sort of like Wait, talking about but- it, but no one no one just like turns their head and like 
I'm I'm sorry. Well, this guy's just weird enough to do something like that. I, I I'm I'm a little unclear timeline wise, and you, you it's a little fresher for you than it is for me. That his scene where he gets fired happens after he shot the guys. I feel like it might have happened before he shot the guys. I'm pretty sure it was after. Because the whole focus of the scene. Because if what you're saying is true, then it's absolutely unforgivable that they're all talking about the fact that he has a gun and there's a guy in a clown makeup in the news who's used a gun and that nobody has made that connection. I don't see how you could have watched another frame of this thing with any kind of generosity in your heart. I was expecting the guy who gave him the gun Mm -hmm. to kind of pull pull him aside and say, hey, man, that wasn't you, was it? You know, right? Except since the gun is going to get traced back to him, it's right. Like, you know, it, except it seems... there's a there's kind of a whole weird thing now that you brought that up. I don't want to. Are you done? I don't mean that in a in a yeah. rude way. Okay. In that with with that scene, I'm done. <laughs> okay, there was a little bit of that that I, I saw this movie with my wife, and we both enjoyed it a good deal. Lucky you, your wife wanted to see it. <laughs> But when we came out, she had kind of an interpretation that was sort of upsetting to me and sort of made me go back and re-examine what I saw and so on and so forth. So I want to run all this by you and see where you are with it. Okay. Basically, the whole Zazzy Beats? Zazzy Beats. Yeah, the the neighbor. The pretty neighbor with the daughter. Mm -hmm. And I thought all of that was fine and the development of it was fine and all of it was fine. And then... He's sitting in her living room and she's like, what the fuck are you doing in here? And yeah. I didn't really I didn't really need us to cut around and show that all those things we'd seen before where she was with him, she wasn't really with him. Yeah. That goes into that category of, of either you don't think I'm smart enough to get with the, the story you're telling or you don't feel comfortable yeah. enough in your storytelling abilities. It feels like maybe that was even something that that was a studio note or some kind of a thing they got yeah, that was nonsense. Yeah. But I liked the reveal, not with those specific shots, but the reveal yes. in that scene that there is no relationship between them. Right, right. Because I similarly was having a problem with her not figuring out that it was him. This guy comes up to her door. Oh. And then, like, they've had like two conversations. He just grabs her by the face, starts kissing her. She lets him in the right. apartment. Well, the next day, the news is all over. Clown killer. She's not going to connect the dots? <laughs> I yeah, Everyone is much smarter in, in your mind than they are in mine, but um, that's very funny. Uh, hang on one second. I was more cons- This isn't even the point I was trying to make, but I'm, I'll take the detour with you. Hold on a second. I was more disturbed by the fact that, like, when we first meet her, Yeah. and they're on the elevator together, Right. she... She makes a joke of putting a pretend finger gun to her head and blowing her own brains out. Like in Taxi And she does it like in Taxi Driver. And she does it right in front of her daughter. Yeah. And she doesn't try to sort of do it on the side of the body where the daughter couldn't see it. She does it in full view of the daughter. And then they all get off and he does the same thing. Even more, even in greater view of the daughter. That would be terrifying for me as a parent. Uh, and that would be the end of anything. Now, of course, we realize later that's all fantasy. But right from the beginning, I was like, this is something. This is a sick thing, this relationship. And I'm not rooting for her character in it. That's a good observation. I didn't think of that. So I was perfectly fine 
when she turns out to be, when it turns out to have all been spoiler alert, you know, in his mind, essentially, I'm fine with it. Yeah. Even that he then goes, even though it's only in his mind that he goes to her apartment and it turns into a whole scene, I kind of like that idea that he almost can't tell the difference between his fantasies and reality. Yes. However, I feel like for fantasizing that relationship. Yeah. I can't help but wonder, wouldn't he have fantasized himself being less socially awkward with her? Because I feel like that that scene where she comes to the door and was like, were you following me today? Right. If he gave a little more normal person exchange, then... Eh, Okay. It would have been easier for me to, to, to buy... The evolution By of their relationship un- until we until we got to the conclusion of it. Okay, this is still none of this is still what I was trying to bring up. But I know, I know, you, now you, it's your, just, your wife's it's a can of worms. No, no, no. There's something, there's something new now that I have to sort of voice while we're sitting here, which is, all right, if you take the sixth sense, anybody who hasn't seen it, plug your ears. If you look at planes, trains, and automobiles, yeah, I don't care if you plug your ears or not. Both of those movies have at the three-quarter or 80% or even 90% of the way through, they have a series of images that represent the protagonist thinking about something from before. Mm -hmm. And then that helps for the audience. It helps visualize what that person is thinking. And so they come to the same conclusion that the protagonist does at the same time, in the same amount of time. Right? Right. Right. But when it happens in Joker... I'm not sure that he is coming to that realization in that moment or that they're just doing it for our benefit. Oh, I, I think they were doing it for our benefit. I don't think that... Right, uh, which yeah. is even more... Yes. Oh, it's even more upsetting to me. I can't... So this is what I mean. Like, a, a normal movie that would do that and I'd go, oh, God, I hate this movie. And that would be... It would become the reason that movie is unacceptable to me. Here I forgave it. But now that we're talking about it, the more we talk about it, the more I'm, I am might have to shift my entire position on this fucking movie because of that one thing. All the praise I gave about how delicate and thoughtful and careful and so on and so forth. Unless I can find out that that was a goddamn studio note that they were forced to put that in against their will. Uh, well. It's going to make me very anti-Todd Phillips. All right. So, so we left and my wife was like, oh, the whole thing was imaginary. And I said, what? And she goes, well, yeah, you saw the scene where where he was with her and that was imaginary. Well, then everything else was imaginary, too. And I was like, hang on a second. Uh, no. <laughs> Slow your roll. <laughs> we have to. Are you telling me that from the first fade in to the final fade out, it all happened in his mind and none of it actually means anything? I have no evidence to support that. <laughs> so so then then the conversation evolved into. And she has a tiny bit of something here. There's a, there's one of the, you've mentioned the scene several times with the social worker. Mm-hmm. And she says to him, do you even know why you were there at Arkham? Right. And he, he says something, I can't remember what his response is, but there's a, there's a sudden, suddenly a, a, a flash cut to him in Arkham smashing his head against a window. Or right. smashing his head against the thing, yeah. a wall. And then, so the argument or the discussion then comes that after she asked that question, what we're watching is a flashback of how he came to be at Arkham. Yes. 
and that then it follows all the way through to mm. I mean he's still he's still imprisoned at the end of the movie which is then really the events that take place before the very first scene somehow um, and it doesn't or, work. It all starts to unravel. But one of her strongest arguments was this. My wife's arguments was this. Yeah. How come, she says, his mom never existed? Because he keeps going to the mailbox. And why do they keep showing him going to the mailbox? And there's no mail in there. If he was living in that apartment and he was really there and he was really a tenant, they would be getting all kinds of junk mail. It wouldn't that's be true. completely empty every time. No, that's and true. So, <laughs> and so, oh my God, now there's two of you. All right, so my response to that was that it doesn't work both ways, in a sense. If his mom is writing, if his mom really exists and he really lives with his mom and she's really writing those letters and the guy is really not responding to the letters, him checking the mailbox and not finding the letters would make sense. Right. And I don't think 1981, there was nearly the volume of, of junk, junk mail, mail that there is now. No, and she's really. like, well, why, why, didn't, why didn't he even get an electricity bill? And I'm like, oh, my God, now you want to have a movie about him opening his bills? So, Well, you know, so, here's the thing. One, once there was the reveal about the, the relationship with the woman down the hall, yeah. then I, it, it's tempting to, to take that and apply it to other things in the movie. Maybe he didn't mm-hmm. really kill his coworker. Maybe they're not hailing him at the end like, like, <laughs> like Risen Christ. Right. You know? He has a fantasy about being on the show before he's on the show. Right. So there's more than one fantasy. I, I don't know. I don't know if I buy that. I, I don't feel like there's real evidence to support right. the whole thing and, well, was imaginary. Unless, uh, agreed, but there's... Yeah. Unless that shot of him hitting the glass with his head yeah. is a flash forward. Okay. That the last scene of him in Arkham is where he's been the whole time. Yeah. Something like that. So uh, for me, it doesn't quite hold up, but I will take a few more steps with you on it. She, she then says, he, he, he wasn't even living with his mother. And I said, okay, so let's take that to be the case. He's not really even living with his mother, but presumably still living in that building. Then when the filmmakers showed us the cutaway, kind of the flashback to indicate that the black neighbor girlfriend wasn't sitting next to him when he was in the hospital... When she says, hey, I'm going to go get a coffee. Do you want something? I said, in point of fact, his mother wasn't even lying in bed because she didn't even exist. So why would you just show us that the girlfriend is missing and not show us that the whole thing is, is not, none of it's happening. It all just starts to fall apart. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. But on track for, in favor of there being some level of fantasy here. We have the scene where the coworker gives him the gun. Hey, you're my boy. I got your back. Don't worry about it. Right? Yeah. And then, and he seems like a little bit of a dick in that scene, but I'm not completely sure. I, I assumed he was from New Jersey. <laughs> and then, and then in, in, in the scene where he's there for the last day of work and he's cleaning out his locker, Mm-hmm. And, and they say, what were you doing with a gun in that place? And he says, well, Bill gave it to me. And Bill is like, that's not my gun. I don't think he's saying that because the guy murdered people. I want to get away from this idea that they were all they should have thought he was a murderer. But right. he says it in a way that really makes it sound to me like maybe he never gave him that gun. Maybe right. that was just Joker's fantasy about how he would have gotten a gun or whatever. 
Well, then the subway scene could be a fantasy. I mean, I... Because, yes, well, I know, but hang on. Now, just staying with that one guy, that same single character comes back to his house later going, going, hey, everyone at the office is... The cops are over there and asking questions because, you know, they're talking about the, the killers. And and then the midget says, hey, they didn't talk to me. Sorry if that's the uh, not um, PC way to say it. And they go, hey, yeah, if if the killer had been a midget, they would have arrested you already. A midget clown, they would have arrested you already. In that scene, he doesn't seem to have any menace or any, like, he's not, he doesn't seem to be out to get the guy. Well, by that point, they definitely know that some clown murdered somebody. And his agenda there should have been about getting his gun back or getting rid of it. Did you get yeah. rid of it or yeah. whatever? Yeah. And not, it doesn't seem to be like that. It just seems like almost like what he says it is, which is kind of a, a quasi friendly visit from a, co- a, a ex co worker. Yeah. And because if he's being threatening and menacing in that scene, then when when Joker kills him, it seems more justified. It seems more like horrifying. Yeah. Uh, no, no, not horrifying. If if the guy seems like he's a menace, it seems more justified when he does it. If the guy just comes in and says, hey, we just came over to bring you some flowers and you then murder him, that makes it more horrifying. So I, it started to make me wonder if there ever really was a gun from this guy or not, or if that was also something that was somehow concocted because the scenes with that guy don't make full sense to me because it feels like he just changes from one time to another as far as what his character arc is or who yeah, he really well, is what his motivations as are a from scene to scene yeah 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 that is fair although i'm i'm still very reluctant to <laughs> to apply the it's all in his head right right whatever you want to call it label on every week scene in the movie yeah, no, I I understand. I understand. You don't want to go back and just like, right? You know, this one line at a time, kind of. Because here's the thing: at the uh, end of the day, dismantle it. At the end of the day, this is ultimately the origin story of the Joker. Yes. Well, if this were all in his head, then there would mm-hmm. be nothing to there be, suggest yeah. to us that this person becomes the Joker. It's, right. He's, he's just another crazy person. Right. Well, if it's all in his head, then none of it actually ever takes place and none of it means anything and it's not an origin of anything. Yeah. If from the moment it starts to the moment it finishes, it's all what he's imagining and he's not even in any of those places. He's in a in a rubber room somewhere. None of it really holds together. Maybe the joke's on us. <laughs> Speaking of things that don't quite hold together, I did want to revisit one other sort of plot point that sticks in my craw okay which is i'm perfectly okay with this idea that the mother used to work for the waynes i kind of like the fact that they're somehow connected yeah that joker is somehow connected to him and i think there was in one of the other movies maybe one of the nolan movies um there there may have been a connection between the death of the waynes and uh oh no it's it's in the tim burton it's in the tim burton oh in the tim burton one okay yeah the first one um Uh, yeah, no, which they he they actually made a little homage to here because when the guy kills the Waynes, yeah. he pulls the string the the string of pearls off Mrs. Wayne's neck. That may even go back to the comic book though as well, but I Oh, that's I take true. your point. That's true. Here's what I was going or what I was trying to say was that maybe she worked for him, maybe she I'm assuming that she really did work for him, but it's possible she never actually worked with him. She was just kind of crazy. 
But let's assume that she did work for him. It makes sense that he wouldn't write back to her, that they wouldn't want to encourage... Right, of course. ...this person. But here's the part that I'm a little fuzzy on, is that presumably she was somehow as a single woman managed to adopt a boy in the 1950s and that she had a boyfriend who was abusive both to her and the boy and that eventually she went to Arkham Mental, you know, Asylum or whatever and lost custody of the son, presumably if she was put away for any period of time. Right. And that she came back out and then she was able to re-take care of him. Well... And, and, And it feels like... That feels like a hard bit of backstory to get through for me. I particularly for a woman who sort of shows no signs of being as demented as they seem to think that she think was. That she, that, yes, that is, that's a good point. I didn't believe the, the adoption paper element. Not that I'm saying that like, I think it was a flaw, but like, well, like one, once this story of her relationship with Wayne started coming together, I just assumed that that was part of the the cover-up of the story. I don't think she ever adopted him the first time. It's either Wayne's kid or it's the abusive boyfriend's kid. Okay, but, but, but more, either, to, the point, but more kid... to the point, to your point, once she's locked up, she's presumably lost custody of him, so he would be in... This is the 50s. This is, like, practically Snake Pit era. Yeah. You know, the, the the attitude towards mental illness in the 50s was not very advanced or humane. Oh, no. And I'm, certainly I'm... They're, sh- they're showing a, a society which is like a fucking sewer vortex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you were in the middle of agreeing with me, and I cut you off. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. Uh... Um, so that was something that kind of I had a little trouble going with and and then so he 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 sees paperwork there that says he was adopted yes in the in that file right and then he goes and kills his mother presumably for lying to him all these years right but then he sees the photo with tw on the back right right after that did you see uh do you did you know zazzy beats before this and if nope. so from what no not okay at all. She was in, I think it was the second Deadpool movie, and she was phenomenal. She was just, you know, uh, like a a breakout star from that. I recently saw her in Lucy in the Sky, mm-hmm. where she did a she did a serviceable job in a movie that I absolutely loathed, mm. absolutely hated it. Um, Natalie Portman, having already seen a Judy. With mm-hmm. um, with uh, what is her name? Renee Zellweger. Yeah, and just the careful, the careful, honorable, and magnetic work that that Renee Zellweger does in Judy, and then to just look at this fucking trash that Natalie Portman was doing, I just it's just makes me so angry that they're both that they would both be called actress. <laughs> it doesn't seem fair. Um, and then when you compare the very careful, look, look, fucking Joaquin Phoenix, right? There's no way on God's earth they shot Joker in chronological order, right? There's no way they did. So any of the scenes where he's trudging up the stairs and that, you know, that we see in the first twice in the beginning of the movie. Yeah. And then that, that, that glorious, you know, ex, you know, exclamation of joy. He has finally figured out who he is. He's one with himself. He is he is God inside himself. 
of him dancing down the stairs. Those were all shot on the goddamn same day when they were at the stairs. They didn't go out there three times. That's not how you make a movie. Right. So that means that Joaquin Phoenix had to carefully modulate each of those tiny scenes the way any actor normally would, but any actor isn't normally going further and further crazy in a movie. And he's so he the work he would have had to do to make that happen is just astonishing. The way he would have had to track the inner development of that character from scene to scene as they're shooting stuff all over the place back and forth and everything and turned around and upside down and everything. Yeah. It's 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 a master class. And basically, you know, Judy Garland is losing her mind in the course of that movie. I'm sorry, Judy Garland is... Uh, Renee Zellweger yeah. did a very similar job of incrementally showing. And, and again, it would have had to have been shot in all kinds of ways. Natalie Portman's character is just cr- sort of crazy for crazy's sake. And scene to scene, it doesn't make any sense. And it just is... It just I'm, I'm, infu- I'm infuriated by the whole goddamn thing. And I don't know why I brought her up. Oh, because that? I was talking about Z- Zazie Beetz, who was in it. And she was terrific. Uh, oh. She's fine. She did a very good job. I like her work. And really enjoyed her a lot in that stupid Deadpool 2. She was the, definitely the best thing about it. Any more any more final thoughts on Joker? You know, maybe we've touched on some of these things or close to them before, but th- my this whole this whole thing just I'm feeling every nerve ending in my body with this movie in a way that I don't usually with movies. I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know why I am so reactive to this uh to this thing, but I totally am. Wow. So anyway, uh, random things that, uh, you know, would just spark some conversation. We talked briefly about the, the mailbox, him checking the mailbox kind of a thing. And I, what I didn't say before, and I meant to, was that it was in that scene that I flashed on the, fl- uh, on the fact that his, his name, Arthur Fleck, uh, would be A, yes. A Fleck, as in an insignificant thing. As in Ben Affleck. Well, yes, also. Nice catch. I have been calling him, I've been calling Ben Affleck a Fleck for years just to sort of be a dick about it. But what I meant was with regards to, more specifically with regards to this character, he is a Fleck, an insignificant thing. A Fleck. Yes. Yeah, you know, you know what? So then how about this? First of all, they're not going to get a letter back from Wayne because he never mailed the letter. Or letters. Oh, now hang on a second. Okay, go on. Go on. But now I'm wondering if it's not deliberate that he got no mail. Like, these these are the, the downtrodden. They're so lower level on so- oh. in society that it's not even it's not even worth sending them junk mail. Like, they just, it's almost like they don't exist. They don't exist. even qualify for junk mail. Uh, that's pretty intense. But hang on a second. You said something to me that I take as somewhat outrageous. I need to go back and say... Did I not say it to everybody, just to you? <laughs> well, I feel that it's just you and me here. This is why these are so intimate, oh, okay. these well, conversations. No. For all the fan mail we get, <laughs> you're probably right. Well, that's not fair. I haven't checked in about two years. But in any case, you just said he never sent the letter, and I was always under the impression that a letter went out, but that the guy never responded, because why would he respond to a crazy person? But you're saying that the letter actually never left, that she wrote a letter or letters that she gave to her son to mail, and he never posted them. Right, because we see him open it. Huh. And read it. Oh. Remember? Yeah, well, 
<laughs> yeah. No, he. She must. No, 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 right. no. I think you're right, though. She must have mailed previous letters. Right. Uh, I sort of felt like that was a new letter she had written to give to him, not the not yeah, an old no, letter. No, you're right. You're right. You are right. That because. But I like. My- I like your interpretation in a way almost better because it makes this extra layer of I don't know weirdness and convolution and if such a word exists. You you kind of very quickly referenced a bunch of things that they that may have been part of his delusion with the neighbor. But I don't think the exchange, the finger gun exchange. Yeah. I don't think that was delusion. I think that was. Oh, really? Because because her reactions are are very appropriate and consistent with reality, as we know. Yeah. Like, hmm, this guy's a little weird. Not suddenly charmed by the fact that he's stalking her. So. Right. Right. I'm I'm thinking that's I'm thinking that's more real. Okay. But anyway. So I'm sorry. Just so that I make sure I understand, you're you're saying that the two of them get on the elevator together and they have this little brief exchange, like you might have with a neighbor. And then she does the gun right. to the head thing in reality, and they get off the elevator right. together. And in reality, he says "Hey" and does the gun thing back. Correct. Or okay, but and in reality, and everything he stalks after her that because we don't know if if right. the in reality he's actually stalking her. I almost feel like I, I understand where you're coming from. I almost feel like almost all of it was fantasy. Even him stalking her yeah, could have been fantasy. I don't- that's true, but I don't think okay, so. Okay, I think that's fair. There's, I don't think there's any way of like really knowing what they meant or like sussing out somehow, oh, this was fantasy and that wasn't. No, we'll just have to corner Todd Phillips at a party one day and <laughs> pin him to the floor and just fucking get it out of him. Very, uh, that's... very excellent idea. So... You know, yeah. You know what, though. Speaking of the thing, you know, the faux, the faux romance with the neighbor, right? The faux Um yes. The fro- yes, the fomance. That was one thing I found actually a little bit refreshing about this was that, unlike a lot of movies, like most movies about a killer, about a maniac, yeah, there's usually a, a, a an attempted romance gone wrong that sort of triggers them to doing their aberrant behavior, right. And here there was no one event that pushed him over. It was just a collection of circumstances and situations. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's what to me is so amazing about his performance, assuming it was shot out of sequence and not chronological, is that every scene is like a little step down lower and lower for him. And I don't even know how he would have like measured how to do that as an actor. But yes, it isn't like, oh, that was the thing that broke him. I was sort of waiting for one big thing. I mean, arguably seeing his mother's file, stealing the file from Arkham and looking at the contents of it, it's after looking at those contents that he goes and kills her. Certainly, that is a turning point for him once he has taken a taken the life of his mother. But I guess that shouldn't be... Well, I'm trying to figure out if that's more or less significant than killing three strangers on a train. So, I, I don't know. I'm starting to split hairs. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's just this, this slow slide. And that a lesser storyteller would have had you know the romance be even if it was still fantasy to have her reaction to his being in the house be something that's so big that sends him spinning off but it isn't it's just another little crumbling of his uh of his whole thing yeah and it's not even a crumbling really because 
Well, no, they never had a to the extent, relationship yeah, to sour. We're not really clear. We're not. We're not really ever certain that how he takes her saying "get out of here." Like how he does. Does he realize? Oh, it's all been a fantasy. Does he not realize that he's been fantasizing and it's just another? You know. No, 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 no. I think you were. I think you were right before that um, little montage of the shots without her yeah uh we're for the solely for the audience ben- audience's benefit i don't think that was a repre- representation of him working it out right in which case he's he's quite possibly still fully engaged in his fantasy about his relationship with her yeah i don't know why i i'm not i'm not inclined to really think of anything else as just being wholly part of his fantasy right Right. Other than romancing her, his mother was real. She existed. He killed her. He did kill three people on the train. It did spark all this uh, right. quasi V for Vendetta mask wearing. No, I I totally understand. I, I was making a separate Hong Kong rioters and Gotham. <laughs> I was making a separate point that I think I didn't make clear to you, which is this: oh. only talking about the fantasy of the girlfriend. If okay. if the function of those cutaways is not to show us that he's realizing that she doesn't exist at the same time we are then realizing she doesn't exist. If it's only for our benefit, then he still thinks that she's his girlfriend. Okay. So what I think... And so, theoretically, he could have had another fantasy scene after that in which she appeared as his girlfriend to him. That would have been interesting. Right, or, and possibly very confusing. So I think an argument can be made that maybe it is him realizing it. I don't know. Certainly, him realizing that he doesn't have this girlfriend would be another step down into the hole for him. Um, so that it may have more value that those flashbacks are for his, for him, not for us. But he didn't seem to play it that way in the scene. No, he didn't. Which is another 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 piece of evidence <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> this is going to be one big interrogation that we have with one or the other of them when we finally corner them somewhere. Oh man, tell me about it. And speaking and speaking of ambiguity. Uh oh. What's your take on the very last shot? Oh, I was going to get to that, but I wanted to get to it sort of at the end for me. But ah, uh, yes, I think that it's a little complicated. There is a, definitely a dreamlike quality to that shot. And so in, the fa- in that it's a dreamlike quality, that sort of helps this argument that says the whole thing is fake because that last part seems like a dream somehow. My, my take on it is that he murdered that woman that he was sitting... It was not really a social worker, but it was an in-institution counselor or maybe a therapist. Um, at the very end, he's having a conversation with, I think, yet another black woman, very similar to the one that he saw as kind of a yes. parole officer, social worker sort. And that sort of comes to a close when she, he starts giggling, and she's, I think she says, what, what's, what's funny? What's so funny? What's yeah. so funny? And he, he sort of goes sort of wandering around his own skull for a minute. He says, I was just thinking about something. And then he, I was thinking about a joke, and he says, you wouldn't get it. And then we cut out of that scene. And by the way, I love you wouldn't get it. I just love that as kind of a last line of... Yeah, especially from someone who's been trying to be a comedian (laughs) up until that point. 
and that is you know he's joker you know but you wouldn't get it and um i my read on that was oh my god he killed her interesting um, now I which can, would explain the bloody foots the the bloody right, footprints the bloody footprints I just the final shot I just love the sort of lyrical way that looked the hor- the sort of the horrifyingness of the blood on the on the floor and and then his running back and forth the sort of comic terribleness of him being chased and just like that the that this story is continuing that this this isn't really over in the literal sense but I can also totally see that they're could be another interpretation here. What was your take? I didn't connect a, a murder with it. I didn't take the, the blood as literal. Okay. To me, it was like a almost surreal, like like the way a comic book would. Well, I guess if it happened in a comic book, it would probably be more to your theory than mine. But I just took it to mean sort of, he may be committed, but he's he's always going to leave a trail of blood. Right. That it, I, I mean, I definitely, I feel like there's room for both of these interpretations. And I actually hold a portion of each of them in my own mind. Because, in your own heart. Because, okay. because of the, the dreamlike quality of it, it's been shot in a slower pace. And it's very, isn't it very grainy shot, kind of washed out with the sort of overexposure in the distance. I think so, yes. That his, yes. Not, not only, I love the idea that it's not only the blood that has brought him there but it's it, the way you're talking about it the blood the trail of blood that he will be leaving as everywhere he goes moving forward it's almost a visual representation of him saying or thinking to himself this is all i'm ever going to right to leave right okay so that's that's all very interesting and cool now i'm going to call you out a little bit and make you justify the other half of it or whatever what do you then Uh-oh. what are you then doing with given that you're taking you're taking the footsteps to be kind of metaphorical or symbolic yes but are you actually taking the fact that he's walking down a hall to actually be occurring or not really occurring and is no, he being happening. chased or is he not really being chased oh because i get the feeling in a place like arkham you're not, and a guy like him, you're not really allowed to just wander around the halls unsupervised. And so the fact that he's alone in a hallway already indicates to me something's gone wrong. Hmm. If, if I'm to take this image literally, if I'm, taking, if I'm taking any portion of this image literally, he may have done something bad. And is in the process of escaping? That he's loose in the hallways, yes. That you could, you might actually think this was the beginning of his getting away. Hmm. I think it was a little too dreamy and arty yeah. for me to to go that way. Com- I, compared I, to, to how gritty to, to everything was. To get to your was. point, yeah. I would, for the record, I would say that I would interpret that as in his mind. Okay, that's. I, I think that's absolutely fair, and I, and and I'm not gonna like, you know, back away from my own thing. Or I think there's room for for all of this. Since you pinned me to the floor, yes. like we were going to do to Todd Phillips, that that that's my position. Um, okay, all right. So I just I have like these little flashes of images and things. It's like a the way I think about this movie is almost like the way you remember a dream. That just like little tiny images jump out at you that feel very loaded and and very like super important, but. 
you know, but because there's not this very, you know, A follows B follows C kind of storyline, I'm just left with these things. So one of the images in my mind, there's a scene early on, which is a, a shot of him from behind. I think the whole scene is made up of two shots, but it starts behind him. He's at work. He's sitting on a bench. He's got the lockers in front of him. He has his shirt off, and I think this is one of the first times maybe we're seeing him with his shirt off. And he's doing something. I can't remember what it was. He might be stretching a shoe, like, to open it wider or something. But we're just seeing him from behind, and all you're seeing is bones and angles. It looks like a, a, yeah. a real-life golem, you know, from uh, Lord of the Rings. It, it, or it, the, the image it brought to mind for me was like, when you twirl a rubber band long enough oh, and it starts coiling up on itself. Oh my God, that's so sick and wonderful. So yeah, just like this little thing, it didn't even matter what he was doing. He just, he did not almost seem like a human being, even though he was in yeah. a human form. <clears throat> so yeah. that little moment uh, jumped out of me. Oh, we were just talking about Arkham. That shot, not at the end when he's actually there, but when he's going to try to get his mom's records, and there's a shot of him yeah. on the elevator, and I think you're you're just hearing maybe music, not even music that's supposed to be from the elevator. You're just hearing soundtrack music, mm -hmm. and there's a couple of orderlies or something, and another patient on the elevator with them. The patient might be in a gurney or might just be in a wheelchair or something, and that other patient yeah. is screaming. And in, in what a normal person, if you stood in that elevator, you would be cowering or you'd just get on the next elevator. You know, you want to have nothing to do with it. Right. And he's just standing there like nothing is happening at all. And the fact that it's silent, if you could actually have heard the guy screaming, it wouldn't have made it better. In fact, it would have made it worse in a, in a heavy handed way. The fact that you can't mm -hmm. hear the screaming at all raises it to this level of art for me. That these little things that keep happening were very, you know, it was art. In a way, that, that's how I feel about the the foot, the bloody footsteps at the right, end. Right, right. That's exactly how I feel. Yeah. it's like they they were. And you're right. There were little touches like that that really did elevate it. Take that, Scorsese. Yeah, I know. Seriously, I I I feel like this is this is the perfect. I think somebody should just walk up to Scorsese with the DVD of this movie and slap him in the face and go, "Guess what? It's a superhero movie. It's a comic book movie, and it's cinema." Uh, there's a scene or a shot where it's really a scene where he's he's dyeing his hair green. It's it's late in it. It's before he dances down the staircase. Yes. And he's in his underpants and there's music playing. And I think it might even be That's Life. Um, I think it probably comes after, you know, shortly after he murders his mother. Doesn't. Yeah. Something like that. And just I don't know, just him dancing in that. He's in his underwear. It's just this dirty underwear that's got the green dye is dripping onto it's just the whole thing is like sort of revolting and i cannot look away from it i can't stop looking at it and i want to see it over and over again i'm a sick man yes you are <laughs> uh that's one of the make things make no mistake the way he dances out onto the stage when he's introduced you know ladies and gentlemen joker and the curtain oh, pulls yeah, back right. and just the way he comes out like just the way he moves is so graceful and so he is so completely him at that point he has so fully been born into whatever yeah. his thing is like he's shed all the chains that he had that were keeping him from being who he really was and that dance is so wonderful and horrifying and uh, i just can't 
I can't get over it. <laughs> there's, there's, <laughs> there's this, a line he has somewhere, obviously after his mother is no longer among the living. It might be when those guys come to visit him, which by the way, that, I mean, I both love and hate it because as soon as his ex coworkers walked in, one of them, the, uh, you know, basically a giant of a man and the other, I thought, oh, he's not going to be able to get out of here because he's too short to reach the lock. And then that's eventually what happened. Oh, I can't believe you you called that. Yeah, really? Yeah, I did. I did. Uh, well, I thought, I thought that would be kind of awesome if that is what happened. I didn't sort of exactly say this is what will happen. But, but yeah. as soon as he didn't automatically murder both of them, I went, oh, okay, it's coming. And, but, and, I, and I really just liked it anyway that he sort of forces him to say, can you help me get this rather than anything? And even then, you sort of still felt like he might not let him go. He oh, yeah. No, I actually loved that. I thought that was brilliant. That, that was a brilliant use of the little man. Right. <laughs> and it it's like him letting that guy go is another kind of symbol of he's like, he is in his own place. Because letting that guy go means that immediately people are going to know that he's bad news. Right. And so he's already got his plan. He's already going to go down and, and be on the show. And he figures he's just going to stay far enough ahead of it that it's not going to it's not going right. to be a problem. Did you realize when you were watching it before, you know, when you first saw the fictional Murray, whatever Murray Franklin show or whoever he was, that that was a yeah, live that that was a live program like broadcast live? Yeah, I wondered about that. I didn't feel like it was set up very clearly because him going, oh, he's, it's going to be on. It's going to be on. We have to go see it. You'd say that even if it was not certainly. Well, in the do 80s. we have confirmation? Did, did, was there confirmation that anyone other than the te than the studio audience saw it? Oh, I think it's on television because I don't remember any reactions to it. Huh. So, I mean, it's possible that it just never airs. Oh, you see, I thought it was actually a live. I thought it was a live program going out that he was. That he's that he killed a guy live on air. I I didn't see anything that disabused me of that notion, but I also didn't see anything that set up the idea that his that that talk show was live. Well, you know, it's funny because it could have it could have just as easily been it would have been a little less nuanced, but it could have easily been an obsession with a TV news person. And that his fantasy is, oh yeah, and then comes true of being on like a live right. in the studio right. audience, right, right, where he then kills somebody. Right. I mean, at this point with Jimmy Kimmel, we do have somebody who does it live, and should be killed on the air. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> uh, that, Sorry, that... I couldn't help that. <laughs> um, I'm not going to touch that one. I just want the authorities to know that it was Dr. G that said that. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. It was Dr. D that enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, there's another there's funny. another show we will we'll, we'll never be guests on. <laughs> right. Well, okay. So and I'm fine with that oddly enough. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah. So, but what I was trying to get to, I I think it's it may be the scene when they come to visit him, those two come to visit him. And they say, how, yeah. how are you doing? I think this is what it is. But the line, the line he says, which I absolutely loved was, my mom died. I'm celebrating. I just love that line so much. 
Wow. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, so those are like all of the little random things. But I did want to say, I mean, I'm kind of stunned. I mean, I feel somewhat justified. There's so many times that there are movies that make hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars and then, it, you know, uh, domestically and then go on globally to, you know, smash records and be all sorts of crazy amounts. And I sit in my, you know, in my little couch at home in my in my seat, my recliner, grinding my teeth because I hated that movie and everybody else loves it and thinks it's great and I think it's horrible. And I'm very tired of being me on those occasions. But this is this is one occasion when this movie is damn near at a billion dollars. And it is completely unlike all those things that get all of the attention in that this really does feel like cinema to me. I sort of understand a little bit about, you know, what Scorsese is saying about those other movies, I think. But this thing is a work of art in, in a way that it speaks to the human condition and so on and so forth. So I'm thrilled. It's, it's literally just knocking on a billion dollars. And I'm sure it's, you know, so close. It's still in theaters. There's no way it's not going to be over a billion. I guess the highest grossing R-rated movie. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I, I kind of, I scoff at those, those like when they, when they frame the sentence about the record they set in such a way my my sort of standing joke is oh that's the highest that's the highest grossing movie that ever came out on a thursday when i was visiting my grandmother you know they right. they add all these little you know things to then make make themselves a number to qualify one it. to qualify them yeah yes. qualifiers exactly but i i'll take highest uh, highest grossing r rated movie of all time is pretty pretty fucking cool It'll probably cross a billion by the time this podcast becomes available. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> it may, Especially it may, at the rate we're going. Right. Well, it's funny. It may, it may be a billion dollars by the time we finish recording this podcast. Yeah, really. <laughs> Let alone getting it out. Anyway, so that, that was sort All of right. my, my side hustle, my side thoughts. Awesome. And I will give it to you right now. I mean, I think I've very clearly said a lot of things about this, about the... I think the terrific work that Todd Phillips did, except for that one little part with the flashbacks, and uh, you know my glowing feelings about the work that Joaquin Phoenix did here. It was great to see Shea Wiggum in this thing, which who I know from Boardwalk Empire. I love his work. He was one of the cops, um, and so I don't know. I guess the very last thing I would say as I was watching this, because hands down, to me this character prior to this movie belonged to Heath Ledger. We formerly mentioned him briefly. Right. Nicholson had kind of made us go Cesar Romero who when he took it over and he owned it then for quite a while and there wasn't sort of anyone even trying to take it away but Heath Ledger so handily removed the mantle from Jack Nicholson you go how did this kid just you know Nicholson's performance is just a joke at that point yeah and uh and Heath Ledger had basically very little screen time or relatively very little screen time and he really did an astonishing thing for the time he spent on screen in that movie. And it, you know, of course it makes your heart ache to think about what he lost and we all lost when he, when he died. But to me, Joaquin Phoenix has, has taken the crown yeah. on his own and in his own terms. And more than that, I think Heath Ledger would be proud of it. I think so too. And that's kind of like what I meant when I said at the, beginning of this that uh, I almost wished it wasn't about the Joker right? because it almost, right. it doesn't feel like it's I mean, obviously they didn't want it 
to feel like it's in the same universe. And I don't know about you. I mean, I was connecting all the dots or trying to connect the dots thinking, how is this character going to turn into the Heath Ledger character? Right. What, what are they going to show me here that makes me believe years down the line he's going he's gonna to do all that? And I was glad that they didn't try to connect it in that way. Right, right. And then before you take your final, your final take, your final two sentences, I will say that this movie is presumably from Warner Brothers, done from a production entity that now plans to take these secondary and tertiary DC characters and make movies about them. Are they all going to be villains? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I don't even know if they'll all be serious or they'll all be whatever. But I could see... I, I could see them doing a couple of them and doing them justice, but go on. I live in fear that there's a Penguin movie coming. Right, because that would be much harder to do in a, in a realistic way. But Gotham, the, movie, the TV show Gotham, which is really very solid. I watched you know, hmm. almost all of it. Did a really good job of showcasing all those other characters sort of doing origin stories there. So I think there's definitely a possibility in that. What's your last word on, uh, on Joker? It occurred to me that, uh, you know, in 20, 25 years, people, yeah. whenever the topic of Joker comes up, people are going to be talking about Heath Ledger. People are going to be talking about Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. And maybe they're talking about Cesar Romero, but they're not <laughs> going to be talking about Jared Leto. Oh, my Jared. God. I, I forgot about Jared. Jared Leto. Yeah, no. I think I think it, history will, uh, will turn Jared Leto into the George Lazenby <laughs> of the... Joker franchise. Oh my God, that is so perfect and cruel and wonderful. And I there's know. another party we're not going to get invited to. Oh, oh my no, God. we will. Just so you can probably, <laughs> just so you can punch me in the mouth, I'm sure. Oh, yes. But, oh my God. Anyway. I, it's okay. so funny because I had thought to talk about him and then he completely fell out of my head. Just like, yeah. just like just he deserves. Like, just like in life. Yeah, just everything Oh my say. God. It's, happens um, all the time. Yes, and he's bitter about the fact that they aren't making a Joker sequel. With him. With yeah. him. A, a Suicide Squad storyline sequel, the way they're doing with uh, What's-Her-Face, uh, Harley Quinn, The Emancipation. Right, he's, al- he's already written out of it, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, she's I Broke Up With The Joker is part of the trailer. Right. Uh, well, Ro- uh, Margot Robbie. I mean, I love that trailer, and I'm probably going to end up seeing that movie, but uh, oof, uh, I don't know. Anyway, that's awesome. Thank you for uh, for that. I love the way your mind works. My pleasure. He's going to deck me at a party one day, but <laughs> yeah. okay. He's going to run over you. Probably. When you're crossing the street. Uh, very cool. I-, I hope they don't make a sequel. They probably will. From what I understand, there that is completely unlikely to happen. It's, okay. No, no. That that Todd Phillips, but more importantly, uh, Joaquin Phoenix, one hundred percent did not want there to be a second. Okay. Good. Movie from the onset. So. Well, hopefully they uh, they stick to that. <laughs> Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for your time listening today. It's been our pleasure to speak with you about Joker. For now, and until next time, the doctors are out. Beautiful, baby.